at John chapter 4. Uh, so you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Uh, please feel free to grab that. Uh, if you don't get this figured out in a second, Todd, can I have your mic? Yep. Um, thank you. Um, so you can go ahead and uh, turn there. Uh, thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Um, you can also follow along on, that's far better, I'll have to scream. You can also follow along on this if you want. That is your smartphone. If you have the version app, uh, underneath the tab section, type in uh, live and then type in the Well Austin. You can follow along that way. Uh, there are places for notes and scripture and all of those things are, are up there. So we want your eyes on the word, okay? If you don't have that, the Bible app or don't know what I'm talking about, you can actually take this link and put it right into your browser and you can follow along that way. Uh, all that to say is that hey, we want you to see the word. We want you to be able to understand exactly what's going on and see that we're not making this up. We really think that these are the words of our Savior Jesus that he has delivered to us that if we submit to them, really do bring about life, okay? And so that's where we're going today. So this is the fourth of our fifth week in our sermon series on who we are and our mission and vision of the church. And so for the past three weeks, we've been looking at exalt disciples sin, kind of taking our mission statement and breaking it down into three different sections. So we have a, a chart of that for you guys so you can see that. And so what we've done is we've walked through those three pieces and then the distinctives underneath each one of those pieces under Exalt, Disciple, and Sin. So if you missed it and you want to know kind of more of, hey, why are we as a church doing the things that we are doing, then you can go back and listen to that online. But we've walked through all of those, all right? Next week, we're going to have a celebration Sunday because next week we'll be celebrating our fourth birthday as a church, all right? And so that's exciting. Uh, you will want to be here because we have some fun things. Uh, but today what we're doing is we're actually going to look at why are we called the well? And so why the well instead of like First East Austin Baptocostal Church of Central Texas or something like that, right? Like, like why is it that we pick the well? And it's actually derived from this story that we're going to read today, all right? So uh, John chapter 4. And we're going to pick it right up in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Okay, so the Pharisees create more drama than Jesus, for Jesus than high school teenage girls create for each other, all right? And so Jesus is always trying to duck and dodge the Pharisees, trying to kind of avoid them because they're always just throwing kind of hatred and slander at Jesus. And so that's what's happening here. He's in Judea. So they hear that he's baptizing people. They, of course, don't like that because they're not baptizing people. So they force Jesus out, all right? So Jesus is traveling. And then there's a little phrase there in verse 4 that says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Question, did Jesus have to pass through Samaria? And the answer to that, as you saw the map flash up, is no, right? In fact, oftentimes what happened is the Jews would actually very purposely take an indirect route around Samaria. Now, Samaria was ironically the fastest route for the Jews to get to where they were going, and Jesus was going to Galilee there. But he actually, uh, the, or the Jews usually took this route around, and they would actually completely surpass Samaria. We'll talk about why in a second, but Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria. So when the text says that he had to pass through Samaria, is that true? Well, the answer to that is actually yes. 
Why? Because Jesus is being led by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, who is God, knows that there is about to be a divine encounter. And so Jesus now, in tune with the Spirit, is realizing we need to pass through Samaria. Something's going to happen here. And so I'm sure that Jesus' senses are kind of even heightened in some ways as he begins to think about, yeah, this is me. Look at that. Round of applause for the sound guys. Come on, y'all. Can I actually say something? Uh, the sound guys are often like, you don't know they exist until something bad happens, all right? And then you're like, what's going on with the sound guys, all right? They serve like crazy. They're here at nine. So thank you, Josh, ma'am. I appreciate that. Okay. Um, so he walks through uh, Samaria and he begins to, this is far better. I can hold my Bible now, y'all. Like, this is good. All right, here we go. I'm ready now. Let's go. All right. So the Holy Spirit is guiding him, all right? He's walking through Samaria and he knows he's about to have this encounter. Let's keep reading. Verse five. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Really quickly, note that word wearied there, okay? Jesus is 100% man. That's one thing that the scripture tries to make really, really plain about Jesus. And so even though this is a really, really small word, what it shows us is, is that Jesus as man is getting tired. Why is this important? Well, because scripture also says that Jesus is God. But one thing that we know about God is God does not sleep. And so God does not get weary. He is in no need of rest. And so Jesus, as a man, is now wearied as he is from his journey, and he's walking through, and he's tired. This shows us that Jesus wasn't like some mystical ghost creature, like a friendly Casper or something like that, all right? And it also shows that Jesus wasn't like some demigod, like Achilles or something, but Jesus is the God-man who put on flesh, who is able to understand us in our weakness, because he was weak like us. Jesus is weary from his journey, okay? Let's keep going, verse seven. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, there are several things in this context that we can't fully understand well because we are not there. But I do want to break it down because it actually gives us really important significance into the story. First of all, in verse 6, it says that it was about the sixth hour, right? So it was right before this verse 7 we read. It was about the sixth hour, okay? If you look in your Bibles, at the bottom of it, it probably says, now that was noon, all right, it was, it was, it was 12 o'clock p.m., okay? Question for you, how many of you like to mow the lawn at noon? Uh, nobody in here, right? Like, if you could choose between noon and 9 a.m., which one do you choose? All right, y'all like really hesitant. Do y'all like, y'all ever mowed a lawn before, right? Like you choose 9 a.m., right? Why is that? Because at noon, it feels like Satan is descending from the sky and landing on your neck, okay? Now, we live in Texas. That's why it feels like that. They are in a Middle Eastern dry context. Like think about the Middle East and the pictures that you get there. Like this is where this is happening at. And so if you don't want to go outside at noon, they for real don't want to go outside at noon, right? And so the women would actually usually come to draw water at about 6 a.m. And so they would get up really, really early. I know it's not very kosher in Austin culture, right? But they would get up as the sun was rising, and then they would go and they would uh, uh, draw water before the sun even came up to uh, uh, avoid the heat. Why is this woman out at noon then? 
Well, every single uh, historian scholar says that it's most likely, which it is likely, we'll see in a minute, that she was a social outcast. There was something wrong with this woman. She didn't want to associate with the other people that were there. And so she would actually avoid the, uh, uh, the, the crowds in the morning, and she would go out in the afternoon, and she would draw by herself. And so here's already one weird social cue that we get from this context. The second one is that Jesus is a Jew, and he is talking to a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with each other, as we'll see later in this text, okay? Listen, think about like whites and blacks in America in maybe the 1800s, and then take that, multiply it by 10, and put that on HGH and steroids, all right? Because what happened is, is that white and black was very, simply a racial thing. The Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other because of racial issues. That's one. But there was also religious reasons they didn't like each other. There were cultural reasons they didn't like each other. There were laws against each other. They had wars against each other in the past. Like There are all these things that are going on. So whatever uh, uh, a picture in our mind that we have of racism, I just want you to take that and kind of multiply that. That was the Jews and the Samaritans. And then here comes Jesus, a Jew, just walking up like nothing's wrong and talking to this Samaritan woman. The third thing that we see is that this was a woman, okay? Now, Jesus is a man, right? He was a man, and men and women in that culture did not talk to each other, all right? In fact, it's pretty crazy because uh, there were some rabbis who said, look, this is a big, big, big no-no. Talking to women is a waste of time. This is actually what one law reads uh, that the rabbis would follow. If you talk to women too much, you will end up in hell, Like, that's not a joke, okay? That was like an actual law, right? And so Jesus here is breaking three pretty big cultural... Now, for us, that sounds weird. Like, we're like, well, who are these people? The reason it sounds weird is because we've been living under 2,000 years of Christ, where he comes and liberates all this, where he brings racial reconciliation together. He brings uh, 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 women and elevates them and puts them as co-heirs. All these things have happened. So we are living as the recipients of this. But back in this day, that had been true since mankind, where... Men kind of dominated women where there were all these cultural uh, 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 stereotypes and all of a sudden Jesus comes and he just starts breaking all sorts of norms here. Why? Because he's thirsty? Like, like that seems like a weird reason to break all of these norms. Is it just because he's thirsty or is it because he had to pass through Samaria and he's realizing that I think God is up to something here, right? I would argue that it's the latter. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So she's confused. Everything I just said, like she realizes that. I'm a woman, I'm a Samaritan. And even the, in case you are reading this and don't know, the author puts in a little parentheses there for us and says, Not that the Jews didn't talk to the Samaritans, that they had no dealings with them. Like if they could avoid even thinking about them, they would avoid thinking about them if that were possible. And so there's all of these things that Jesus is breaking here. Let's keep reading verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Okay, now I want you to like imagine this conversation. Oftentimes in the Bible, there are actually things that are kind of supposed to be read as uh, almost jokes, if you will. Like they should produce a ha-ha chuckle out of us. And this is actually one of those sections, right? Jesus comes and he says, can I have something to drink? And she says, are you talking to me? And he said, if you knew who was asking, you'd actually ask me for a drink. She's like, uh, are you, what, what's going on here, right? Like, that's a confusing statement. If I come to you and say, can I have a drink? And you're like, who, me? And I'm like, actually, you should be asking me for a drink. That would be like very weird and awkward, right? And so this is one of those statements where there's a little bit of awkwardness here. What is Jesus doing? Does he not know how to communicate? No, we know he's the author of even words that we use. And so what is he doing? Well, if you're with us a couple of years ago in the book of John, you saw something that we walked through. In almost every single chapter of John, what Jesus does is he talks about something that can be taken as a physical uh, metaphor, but he's attaching with it a spiritual truth. However, the people always miss the spiritual truth and they begin to focus on the physical metaphor. Take, for example, in John chapter 3, the chapter right before this chapter that we're reading. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he's walking through the gospel with him and he says, you have to be born again. And our boy Nicky says, "Uh, that's really awkward. (laughs) Like I have to get inside my mother's womb and be born again, right? And so he takes what is supposed to be spiritual and he tags the physical with it. A chapter after this, or two chapters after this, Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody's like, we're not cannibals, man. Like, this is kind of weird, right? Like, we like that you're healing people, but we don't really like this. And he's saying, look, you're missing the physical or you're missing the spiritual. You're focusing on the physical. That same thing is happening here. And Jesus does this on purpose. He begins to highlight a spiritual truth. But oftentimes, all throughout scripture, the people miss that spiritual truth and they focus on the physical realities in front of them. Let me ask a practical question for us then. How is the Lord trying to speak to you spiritually And how do you keep missing it and are only focusing on the physical? Let me ask it in a different way. Does God keep bringing you through the same type of suffering? Are you sure that you're not missing what he's trying to show to you? Or is he trying to speak to you? Do you feel something in your spirit? Do you feel like you have to go through Samaria? Do you feel like there's something that God's stirring up within you, but the physical things that are in front of you make it hard for you to see the spiritual realities behind them? Is there something that God is doing in your life right now where he's trying to speak to you in profound ways, but instead we're only focusing on what's here in front of us right now? Like, is our job kind of preventing us from being able to see this deeper meaning that God has for us? Is our relationship or lack of relationship, is our children or lack of children, is our whatever they may be, like, is God trying to speak something to us and are we missing it? All you have to do is ask yourself, how am I praying? Like, if you think through your prayer requests for the past week, month, year, Are you kind of praying the same things over and over again? And is God actually bringing the same situations into your life over and over again? And are you missing the spiritual because you're focusing on the physical? That happens all the time throughout Scripture. So we can look at this woman, and because we know the end of the story, we can go, oh, she's just missing the point. But I think the same thing is true with us often. We're just missing the point. Jesus is trying to speak to us, and we're totally missing it because we're focused on something weak like suffering 
and we allow suffering to overcome what Jesus is really trying to do in us. Let's keep reading. Verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Amen. Okay. Verse 14, by the way, is where we get our name, the well from. I'm going to completely pass over this and then come back to it at the end. Because if I talk about it right now, I will lose my voice before we finish this. Because this is a freaking awesome verse. Okay. So let's keep reading. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Dang, Jesus. Right? Like, so we get all this beautiful spiritual truth, right? Like, hey, I have this living water for you. And she's like, oh, I want some of that water. And he's like, well, yeah, but you've had five husbands. Right? That seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Like, if you're thinking the Jesus that you know and the God that we know that's aligned to Scripture that wants us to know him, Jesus drops this bombshell on this woman all of a sudden. Like, like what is he doing? Okay? The ironic answer is that he's actually answering her request. She said, Lord, give me this water. And he's answering her. He is trying to give her this water. Why do I say that? Well, he's talking about himself, obviously, as the well, right? Jesus is the well. He says, if you drink of this water again, you will never be thirsty. And we know, particularly from the end of this uh, text, that Jesus is the well. He is the water that you drink to never be thirsty again. To drink of Jesus will give you life everlasting. Every single person in here has something that they desire so deeply, yet they usually use physical things to try to achieve that desire or satisfaction. And so maybe you have a desire for comfort, or maybe you have a desire for control, or maybe your idol is money, or maybe your idol is whatever it may be, but there's something that every single one of us continually run back to over and over and over again, just like this woman here at the well. She desires this water, and she thought she could find this water in men. And so she marries a man, and that doesn't really work out, so then I'm assuming they get divorced or maybe she even kills this dude. I don't know. We don't know this woman, right? But then she exits that one, goes to number two, goes to number three, goes to number four. Maybe some of them were just bad men, but that's also somewhat her, right? Now she's living with a guy who is not her husband. So we have to assume that there's adultery and different things that are going on here. Jesus is knowing that she's looking for what she needs in men. And so Jesus is responding to her desire to say, sir, give me this water that will satisfy me forever. And Jesus is showing her something. She says, I want to never be thirsty again. And then Jesus drops this bomb on her, right? What is Jesus doing? He's answering her request. How? Jesus knows that in her seeing her sin, it is actually going to point her into her need for a savior. Without the understanding of sin, we have no thought or desire that we actually need a savior. So if we do not know the depravity of the sin that we're in, we don't think that we need a Savior that much. Like we think, oh, I've done like four or five bad things in my life, so I guess Jesus can save me from those. But what Jesus is doing is she says, I want this water, please give it to me. And he says, okay, you want it? 
good, I want you to have it too. Let me show you where you're trying to find it at. And so he points out all of this, uh, uh, the, the, the men that she's been going back to over and over again. And Jesus is going to come back around and say, I can satisfy in a way that these men could never satisfy. Jesus isn't being mean. He's actually being the exact opposite. He's being unbelievably gracious to this woman because he is showing her her need for himself. And he knows that only he has the ability to satisfy so the question is, the, the, the practical application for us is, what do we keep running back to, right? Like, like in our culture, what happens is oftentimes we don't want to focus on our emptiness or our sin. And so we'll read kind of self-help books to make us feel better about ourselves or we'll flood our lives with media and entertainment so that we don't have to sit alone with ourselves and think about the condition of our hearts, And I don't know if the same was true in that culture, but what Jesus is doing is he's forcing her to see the condition of her heart because upon seeing that condition, she will realize, oh shoot, I need somebody to save me. And Jesus is that savior. Far from being mean, he's being unbelievably gracious. And so we too, oftentimes, we, we draw from a pail that has no bottom and we treat, keep trying to consume of these cheap goods, not realizing that we have Jesus right in front of us and he's able to satisfy in ways that our souls don't even, they, they, they can't even fully comprehend. We can't even receive all of the goodness of Jesus. And yet, we keep running back to these empty things. So Jesus is forcing her to see something about herself, that these relationships don't satisfy her. He's kind of cutting right to the heart of the issue. Instead of dancing around, instead of allowing this to go on, he just gets right to the heart because he realizes God is doing something in her life. Do you want to be never thirsty again? Do you want to be satisfied, Jesus says? Okay, I need to remind you what you're doing right now, that's not working out for you, is it? Like the way that you're searching for it right now, it's not working out for you. Let me show you a better way Jesus is going to go on. And many of us, what happens is we try to hide our sins. We try to hide our imperfections. We try to hide the different things that are wrong with us. And in doing that, what we're actually doing is we're forgetting that we ourselves need a Savior. To be able to see the depth of who you truly are actually reveals, reveals to you the depth of God's love for you. Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors, says it like this. You are far more sinful than you could have ever imagined, but God is far more gracious than you could have ever dreamed or hoped for. And that is true. God is far more gracious than even the depth of our sin carries us. So we, like the woman at the well, I think, don't often think about, see, she's just going about her normal day-to-day life. She's just with this dude thinking, man, maybe this dude will satisfy, but Jesus forces her to think about the issue. Is Jesus drawing out something in you? trying to force you to think about an issue so that he can come in and be the satisfier of your soul. This is the God of the universe, okay? Now, notice what happens here, though, okay? This is the God of the universe, Jesus, and he's sitting here, and he's looking at this woman, and in a lot of ways, she is naked and ashamed before him. Like, he calls out her sins, and he is staring at her directly for her sins. This is the holy, just God of the universe who punishes sins, who is perfect, and what does he do with this woman? Does he look at her and go, get away from me, right? Is that what Jesus does? Or does he actually beckon her into himself? Does he actually call forth her goodness? Even though he sees her sins, even more than she sees her sins, does he reject her or does he accept her and draw her into himself? The love that the Savior has for you is 
astronomical. And what happens is sometimes we don't think about our sins because when we do that, it's almost like we feel too dirty for God. But can we even look at this story or the plurality of all the stories of Scripture that show how depraved man is, yet at the exact same time, how unbelievable God's affections for them are. God loves them because he knows them. He knows that they're sinners. He knows that they're sinners more than they know that they're sinners. Yet God tries to draw them into himself. You are not too bad for the grace of God in your life. If one of the psalm writers that we love to sing from and read from murdered and committed adultery and then lied about it and on and on and on, and then he's called a man after God's own heart, don't you think that you have a chance too? If the person who wrote most of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, was a serial killer, was a terrorist in a lot of ways, and then God transforms him and brings him into his presence, and now he is one of the men that we look after the most. Like, if God can use that man, don't you think God could use you too? Like, I don't know every one of you in here, but I doubt that any of you are serial killers like Paul was. And if you are, Go to another church, all right? No, no, I'm just kidding, <laughs> right? Like, man, like God is able to save to the uttermost. God is able to save us, friends. You are not beyond the salvation of God, okay? Let's keep reading. Verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she tries to change the topic. She's like, oh, shoot. <laughs> All right. Um, wow, man, you're a prophet. That's really cool. Let me ask you this spiritual question here, right? Like, like where are we supposed to worship? So she's kind of backpedaling now. She's not thinking about the water that she needs anymore. She's just like, oh, no, I've been found out. What am I going to do? Remember, in a very, very, very vulnerable situation, a woman speaking to a man, a Samaritan speaking to a Jew, she is probably feeling the weight of what's happening right now, right? Verse 21, verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Notice, not for the Jews, but from the Jews. Jesus, okay? But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jug and went away into the town and said to all the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Jesus sees her for exactly who he is and does he condemn her? <laughs> Friends, the exact opposite happens 
God actually reveals to her who he is. If you read throughout the Gospels, you know that Jesus is often very hesitant to reveal who he is very explicitly because he knows explicitly revealing it would lead to his death, and he has to complete all the works that God has for him. Yet, to this Samaritan woman, to a woman that isn't even a Jew, that that isn't even a man, that he actually reveals, I am the Savior, I am the one that can satisfy there's so much good here. I'm literally like, I'm trying to contain myself, okay? <laughs> Jesus is so good, all right? And he offers you what no one else can. He can satisfy what your heart desires. If you allow yourself to think for a second about yourself, you know there are things that your heart desires that you continually try to find in all these other avenues and realms. Friends, Jesus is the well, Jesus is the well that if you drink from, you will never thirst again. You will never long for that again. You have your complete and full satisfaction in him. We try to bury our sins and not think about it because it makes us feel dark and ashamed. But do you see what looking at your sin does? It shows you your need for a savior. But do you see who this savior is? He's not a condemner who smashes you because of your sin. He doesn't drag your face through the mud and makes you feel guilty. No, instead he says, I am the Messiah. Come to me and you will not thirst again. Like Jesus knew this about this woman before he offered her drink. And he offered it to her anyway. Why? Because Jesus longs to satisfy. Like, do you see this? See, the Jews, okay, now here's one thing that's important about this. Because our Savior sounds good, but Jesus does actually lay out a theological implication that this woman has to understand. The Jews at that time had the right understanding of God, but many of them were caught up in religion in different ways. They were uh, trying to find their own righteousness. They were trying to be good enough. They were trying to keep the law to perfection. And they thought, I don't really need a savior because I'm good enough on my own. And a lot of us, if we're honest, kind of think that too. And we don't really need a savior because we're not that bad. We're not like that joker over there. And we compare ourselves to like ISIS, right? Like, okay, what about when we start comparing ourselves to God? Are we that bad? (laughs) Right? Okay, so we think we're good. The Jews kind of thought that. So they thought, oh, oh, I I don't really need a savior. The Samaritans, on the other hand, they kind of had the spirit behind everything. Like you see this even in the woman's request. She's like, you know, is it on this mountain or in this mountain? Like, I really just want to worship God. But then Jesus says to her, you worship what you do not know. You're worshiping the wrong God. The Samaritans had a great spirit. They longed to worship the right God, but they weren't worshiping the right God. So they had the spirit or the heart behind it, if you will. And the Jews had the head behind it, but both of them were missing the need to combine these two truths where you have head and heart. The Father is looking for those who worship in spirit and in truth, and both is important. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we think about it, oftentimes, like, we tend to, in our culture, focus mostly on the heart. Like, is the the person really genuine? Are they really meaning this? But in that, we kind of forsake the truth. Now, that doesn't really make much sense if you think about it. It sounds okay, like, oh, they're really, really trying. But let's pretend, right, that I was really, really trying to honor my wife. I'm really, really trying to honor her. And I buy flowers, and I walk up to a person and say, here, here you go, here's these flowers. You're, you're so beautiful. Like, like, you have awesome hair. I love your eyes. I love that dress on you. But my wife is sitting over there, and I'm talking to this person right here, right? I may have the heart behind it. Is that okay that I'm doing that? Okay. 
Let's go ahead and try this again, all right? <laughs> is it okay? No, right? Like, it is not okay. So I can have the heart behind it. I can be as genuine as I possibly could be. But if I'm not honoring the right person, I'm not honoring her at all. My genuineness means nothing. And so a lot of times in our culture, we have people that are very, very genuine, but they're choosing not to come to the right God in Jesus. Jesus isn't being mean and showing the exclusivity of himself. He's actually being unbelievably gracious because he's saying, look, I'm the one who you are supposed to come to. Come to me if you want to be satisfied. These other gods that aren't gods at all will never satisfy. They can't because they're not alive. I'm the only one that is God. At the exact same time, though, we need to not just have the right head behind it. If I tried to honor my wife and I said, here's flowers, babe. That dress looks really great on you. Okay, yeah, whatever. Right? Like, would you guys think, oh, man, Tori really loves his wife. Like, would that be what you thought? No, right? Now, I may be directing it to the right person. I may be saying the right things, but do I have the motivation behind it? No. See, we need the head and the heart to be able to worship Christ. And a lot of times, a lot of us are either really emotional, like myself, or we're really intellectual, and we tend to depend on one or the other. But Jesus is saying, the Father is looking for people to worship in spirit and in truth. You have to have the heart and the head behind it. But when you have that... When you are coming to the right Savior, which is I, Jesus says in this text, I am the Savior, and you desire that, you realize your need for him, you realize your brokenness, you desire to be built up in him, when those two combine, friends, you have a Savior in Jesus that is a well that will never leave you thirsty. Do you realize what that text is saying? Like, I'm thirsty right now, Okay. Right? Like, like we get thirsty, and he's using a very explicit analogy. Half of you just looked at my water like it's right there. I'm just on a roll. I don't want to drink it, all right? But, like, we get thirsty again, right? Like, like, we're ready to drink over and over and over again. Why? Jesus is using an analogy to show the spiritual conditions of our soul. Your soul was designed to uh, be satisfied by the God of the universe. And when we fill it with lesser things, they will not satisfy. We will be thirsty again. But when we have Jesus, he can satisfy forever. Friends, this is good news. We have the Savior of our souls, and he has presented himself to us. Though he knows you fully and completely, he knows every little detail about you. He sees you for who you truly are. That does not make him withhold any amount of affection or love for you. In fact, he goes even that much more aggressive to woo your heart to himself. Scripture says that God saves the worst of us. I know that's true in me. Is that true in you? Did God woo you out of your self-righteousness? Did God woo you out of your depravity? You have a Savior that loves you, friends. Jesus is the well that satisfies, okay? Notice in verse 23 really quickly, it says that God is seeking a people to worship him. It's not that God is this distant, mean God that's kind of sitting up in heaven just waiting for you to make a mistake so he can slam you with a rod of judgment. No, God is seeking you. We do not seek God. Scripture says God seeks us. That's how much God loves you. He longs for you to know him. He is the well that satisfies. You have a savior unlike any other, friends, unlike any other. Man, does your soul believe this? Or does it keep running back to wells that cannot satisfy like this woman? Okay, let's keep reading. Um, in the... Uh, 
the disciples come, and in verses 32 through 39, they uh, sort of say the exact same things again. So they, they walk through, they say, Jesus, what's going on here? And Jesus is like, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So he gives the exact same analogy, but he just uses food this time. So he's speaking the same truth, all right? So 32 to 39, you can read that by yourself. We're going to jump ahead to verse 39 to finish our text here today. Verse 39. Remember, the woman runs off, tells the whole town, he told me everything I've ever done, which they had like a two-minute conversation, right? So this can't be true, but you could tell she's moved, like, oh my gosh, this might be the Savior. Okay, verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Pause. This town knows this woman, don't they? Like, you, who, who in here grew up in a small town? Okay, you know who the sinners are in that small town? You know who the kind of scandalous people are in that small town? Like, this is a small town. They know who this woman is. And then they see, oh, shoot, something's happening to her, right? Like, she's talking. She's excited. What's going on? So many people believe very simply because of her testimony. He told me all that I ever did. That's not even a good testimony, <laughs> right? Like, if somebody told me that, I wouldn't be like, ooh, I want to be saved, right? But they realize, man, something's happening here. Okay, God is doing something. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. As we think about our mission and our vision as a church, I want you to think about something. Didn't Jesus show forth the example of everything we've talked about in the previous three weeks just in this story alone? Like, think about exalt. We talked about that in week one, right? And one of the things under exalt is we said uh, that we want to be Christ-oriented. There's a chart here to follow along with, right? So we want to be Christ-oriented, okay? Like, 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 didn't Jesus show forth himself over and over and over again to the woman? Look at me. Look at me. I can satisfy. I'm the Savior. He was pointing to himself over and over and over again. Was he gospel-oriented? Well, yeah. He shared the gospel with her, and she believed, like he said, I am the water of life. He actually shared it with her in a relevant way to help her be able to see how she needs him. Did he reach the lost? Well, this woman believed, who didn't believe before. And a lot of people in that village believed, who did not believe before. Yes, Jesus is reaching the lost in this story. Did he equip the saints or, or build up the body? Well, yes, he did, because his disciples came back, and he's walking through with them, and he's helping them to see, hey, here's why I'm doing this with this woman. Salvation is important. Then he stays two days longer with the Samaritans. He's supposed to be going uh, to Galilee, but he stays with them to help them learn even more. Does he live in community? Well, we see the disciples are with him and they're doing life together with him. He's walking through this. He's not solo. He's not by himself. In fact, the fact that the text points out that Jesus was by himself at the start of this story shows how infrequent he actually was by himself. He was always with his disciples. They were always around him. He lived in community with them. Did Jesus plant churches? Well, you don't see it in the story directly. But in Acts chapter 8, if you fast forward, if you remember this name, this little village name, Sakar, they go to, in Acts chapter 8, Peter goes to, and the whole village believes immediately. Why? Because they already saw Jesus. 
They believed and they said, yeah, this makes sense. And then a church was planted. In fact, it was one of the first Gentile churches that was planted. Jesus starts planting the seeds. His disciples come and finish the work, which is actually what he told them would happen in verses 32 through 39. Yes, Jesus plants churches. Does he send missionaries? This woman was a missionary. She went and gave a testimony that wasn't even that stable. And the, half the town came to believe. And then they come to Jesus and they come to believe more. Yes, he is that. Did he serve the city he was in? No, all right? That's the only thing that he didn't do in this text, all right? You can't have everything in one text, all right? I tried, okay? But we know that Jesus served in other ways, all right? So Jesus is our example, right? Like Jesus is our example. He goes forth and he does everything that we want to be as a church. Why? Because we want to submit to the person and work of Christ. He is our leader. He knows what he's doing. He is who our souls thirst and crave, friends, your soul will not be satisfied until it finds its satisfaction in Jesus. And that is just a true statement. Our, our hearts need him. Jesus is our well. The reason that we're called the well is because, man, that's who Jesus is. We want to be about Christ. We want to focus on his person and work. He is the savior that our soul needs. And listen, friends, even more than just being our example, isn't Jesus also our fulfillment in this text? Isn't Jesus also our fulfillment? He says, if you drink of me, you will thirst no more. How does Jesus have the right to say that? Well, fast forward to John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, he says a really simple phrase. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. Jesus became thirsty that you may never thirst again. Jesus is not just our example, but he's the fulfillment for you. The reason that he can offer you life and life everlasting is because he himself got the punishment that we deserve. When he's looking at that woman saying, you can be freed from your sins, he knows he can offer that because he's going to pay for her sins. Jesus is not just an example for her, but he is the fulfillment. He thirsted that you may thirst no more friends. Why go to wells that do not satisfy? Come to Jesus. He is the satisfactory everything that our souls need and are looking for. We long for him. We are not satisfied until we find our satisfaction in Christ. Christ thirsted that you would thirst no more. Friends, don't be thirsty. Don't run to all these broken wells. Come, because here's the beautiful truth that Isaiah uh, 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 gives us an analogy of. It says, why do you pay for milk and wine and, and food and bread and, and water? Why do you pay for that? when it's found for free in Jesus. Friends, Jesus is for you for free. It's free to you, but it cost him a whole lot. It cost him his life. It cost him the wrath of God. He thirsted that you would thirst no more. Friends, this is the beautiful truth that we have in Jesus. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, Jesus, I confess, I confess on behalf of us that I don't always feel the, the weight and the punch of this like I know my soul should. 
I don't feel that depraved at times. I, I don't feel like I need a Savior. I forget how good you are to me. I, my heart becomes callous and hard and just gets used to running this life. God, would you remind me of how beautiful your salvation is? Would you remind us, God, of how beautiful the gift of life is that every single person in here can have? God, would you help us to understand that, that we would be able to come into your presence with thanksgiving, that we would be able to worship you as we should, God. Lord, forgive us for our callousness, for our hardness, God. Help us to remember how beautiful and good you are, Christ. Lord, I confess that I often forget this truth on Monday or on Tuesday as, as life starts hitting. It's, it's very easy for me to get lost and to start going back to the wells that don't satisfy God. Would you help us to find our satisfaction in you? Lord, I pray that even right now that if there are those in here who have never come to you, Maybe they were too afraid that they uh, had to clean themselves up first and they had to be good enough. God, would you show them that you love them where they are right now? Maybe there's some self-righteousness. There's some thought that I don't really need a Savior. I've got this on my own. God, would you convict them of their need even right now? And friends, I want to encourage you that, man, if you don't know the Savior right now, you can know him. Jesus thirsted that you would never thirst again. Find your satisfaction in Christ. Choose even today to follow him as Savior. Lord, I pray for every single man and woman in here that we would all be reminded of how much we need you, Christ. We would find our satisfaction in you. Thank you for being our well, Jesus. Praise in your very beautiful name. Amen.